Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Nicholas F. Jacobs and Daniel M. Shea about their new book, The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place and the Disuniting of America. Nicholas is Assistant Professor and Daniel is Professor and Chair of the Government Department at Colby College. This book examines the widening gap between rural and urban America, asking why rural voters largely turned away of the Democratic Party entirely. This book looks at both history and the most expansive survey of rural voters ever conducted in America. Who are rural Americans? What do they believe? And how do misconceptions breed division? The rural voter gives readers plenty to think about, especially with the 2024 presidential election less than a year away. Nicholas and Dan, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb. Nice to be with you. Of course. Yeah, this is an utterly fascinating book. I, I think uh, there's so much in here, and I really do think it, it's one of those books that uh, any American uh, would, and anyone interested in American politics would, would really gain a lot from reading it. Uh, and I was wondering if you both just tell me a little bit about why you chose to write this book. Yeah, that, thank you for the question. It, it seems like so long ago. The book's been in gestation for years. Um, I guess the easiest way to explain that is Dan and I are both rural voters. Uh, we don't fit all the patterns that we explore, but at the end of the day, uh, we're sort of rare for academics. Uh, rare is it that an academic is from rural areas and, and calls rural areas home? Rare are they both in the same department? And I think uh, as Dan and I just began to talk about what we were seeing in our own towns uh, in, in rural Maine and, and talking about the news, we realized that the way in which our neighbors are often talked about the way in which uh, the, the processes that they come by to make political decisions are, are discussed by people who may never have stepped foot in rural America, or if they do, they're just going by for a brief period of time. Um, there was a story here that wasn't being told. It wasn't being told by by the right types of people and, and not as expansively as we thought it deserved. So we, we teamed up to try and, and write a definitive account of rural voting. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. I, w- I would add that it's been on my mind for, for a long time. I was thinking earlier, maybe maybe for decades, right? So I grew up in a rural area. I grew up in upstate New York, Otsego County, and my mom was a county party chair. And I was the one, I had a bunch of brothers, I had five brothers and um, but I was the one that always jumped in the car with her to go to the potluck dinner or go to the barbecue and so forth. You know, there was no surprise I was going to study parties and elections. But when I did that, you know, it was, it was out into conservative areas, but, but it was very different. There was something uh, uh, much uh, more congenial, much more sort of respectful of sort of the town gown or the, the city-urban divides in, in, in Otsego County. And we've seen this transformation that Nick's talking about. It really is unprecedented what we've seen. It wasn't very long ago when many rural areas had Democrats and often progressive Democrats. Um, in most of the country, that's all gone. And uh, what's left in its wake is, is a one-party system. I'm sure we'll get to why this all matters. But there's an unprecedented transformation. I just feel lucky that uh, Nick came to Colby College, and he was already an expert in this area, and we were able to tag team and, and move, I think, this this research uh, forward 
in a new direction. So just to sort of uh, start things off, Orient listeners, who you know constitutes rural America? What is rural America? Well, rural peoples make up about 20% of the American population, a little bit less than that when it comes to classifying the American electorate. We live in rural parts, <laughs> you know? I, I know that seems like a flimsy definition, but believe it or not, we've been classifying people into urban parts of the country and rural parts of the country all the way back until the very first couple of censuses, getting very clear delimiters of of uh, population density and population concentrations in the early 1800s. Um, Dan and I specifically think about ruralness in two ways. Historically, what we do is we identify people that live outside of urban areas, right? Historically, in the United States, urbanness is what's new. That's what has to be cataloged. Urban areas are growing. Uh, the percent of the American population living in increasingly dense areas is very small at start and really only becomes a majority of the population in, until 1920. And so government is more interested in identifying the people that live in very dense places in the United States, and everybody else lives outside of, of these dense places. They're called rural eventually, once they become the atypical person or atypical community. So we rely on census figures and census figures that uh, are not still digitized and census figures at the county level that build up from the smallest uh, increments of uh, the census block and classifying population density at that block and moving all the way up to county level so that we can identify voting patterns at the county historically. When we get to the survey analysis, um, we and a growing number of scholars are convinced that to understand ruralness, you have to rely on people's own self-descriptions of ruralness. I mean, the crux of our analysis of the rural voter depends a lot on, on social identity theory, people that identify as rural. And the way we get at identities is we ask people how they identify. Do you think of yourself as a rural person, a city person, a person that lives in the suburbs? Um, and so it's these subjective interpretations that that guide us to identifying the, the rural voter when it comes to survey analysis. You know, I would quickly add, and we were careful to double check that the census cap based calculation, well, how did it square up with this perceptual measure? And it's pretty darn good. It's pretty darn close. There's, there's a, a little bit of slippage. Some people that might live in suburban areas think of themselves as rural. Maybe some rural folks actually live in metropolitan areas. But there, but it, it's pretty close. Well, the way we define it, both through the census material and through the perceptual uh, data, you, you cover about two hundred plus years of American history, going over uh, uh, over uh, the, the the rural urban divide, the the evolution of of rural America. Uh, I I think you know for the interest of this interview, we we won't spend too much time covering that prehistory. I do recommend that listeners, if they're interested in in that history, go and, and check the book out. Uh, but but let's just just sort of look at when the rural-urban divide started to become more pronounced. How did uh, rural America evolve and start to uh, become uh, sort of what it, what it what it is maybe today? 
Well, yeah, we spent a lot of time on that. It's actually two chapters of the book because it's, I think it's a fascinating, detailed story. And you are right, Caleb. This rural-urban divide actually stretches right back to the very beginning of our nation's history. You know, we spend a little bit of time talking about the feud between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and their different conceptions of what the nation would be like in the future, their hopes for their for their nation, and how that trickled into or that turned into policy, real policy disputes. What we see from from that period on is uh, a division often, but it's not nationalized. We see it uh, state by state, or we see it in, in different regions of the country. It really doesn't move towards this national division uh, until the late 70s and 1980s. And I think there are three forces that come together, and Nick can chime in on this too. But I think there are some ground-up pressures. There are some real policy, sort of international economic pressures that make it harder to live in rural America. For example, we begin to see the dramatic decline of uh, rural family farms, right? So we're very careful in this book to say that rural doesn't mean agriculture, doesn't mean farm per se. But farming and agriculture are a very important part of a lot of rural communities. The rise of corporate farming takes, takes off rapidly by the 1970s, 1980s. We see a decline in rural-based manufacturing. There is a movement at the federal government to greater control uh, uh, through, the, uh, through the environmental regulations. We see the sagebrush rebellion. So there are a number of sort of changes to the life, policy changes to the lives of, of rural Americans that, that are starting this process. Um, on top of that, we have uh, some really savvy politicians that understood that if they push this issue, if they told this group of voters that are increasingly feeling alienated uh, and discouraged, if we put, if they push them to, and told them that there's only one party that really cares about you, that really cares about real America, that they could yield dividends, and they did. And of course, that's the Republican Party. I would add on top of that, there was a change in popular culture. We spend uh, some time talking about the impact of popular culture. So rural voters, uh, rural America is a sanctuary throughout much of the 20th century. But by the later part, at first, it it is something to to make jokes about. It is hee-haw and Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. But then it turns in a more ominous direction by the late 1970s and 1980s. We get rural is nearly always the setting of horror films nearly always the place of villains. Of course, Deliverance, the movie Deliverance, we talk, we have a few pages on that very powerful turn. We test this issue, just FYI, and we do find that rural Americans are, are pretty resentful at the way they're portrayed in the media. So those three pieces, the bottom-up pressure beginning in the 70s, the, the astute political operatives pushing this real America button, and the change in pop culture, I think, all come together uh, to start to move this 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 rural, rural American, this rural voter away from uh, the rest of, of America. What is the myth of real America? You alluded to that, but but what is what is what do you mean by real America, and how was it created? Well, we want to be careful. I'm not sure uh, we mean anything by the myth because we do think it's a myth. But this is this is very much a part of what Dan is is referring to in that second point about 
adopt these top-down narratives that politicians create about Americans that are entirely self-serving. It helps them win elections, divide and conquer. The myth of real America refers to this idea that there's a hard-working America, there's an industrious America, there's an America out there that doesn't want to depend on government for anything. And you are more likely to find that outside, out in the countryside, away from the big city. And it's sort of weird, because at the same time, while pop culture and, and, and cultural norms about rural America are oriented towards the urban, or, you know, the, the future is in the city, you can make it on your own by moving to the big, big city and, 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 and climbing the social ladder there, and the countryside is in the background, there's a political narrative about a sort of lost American ideal, right? The nostalgia for a patriotic, God-worshipping, or Christian God-worshipping, nuclear family, you know, working with their hands in their small house on the land. And, and it, it takes different, you know, there's different riffs on it. I, I think I'm channeling a Reagan riff uh, in my early description, um, but by the time you get around to 2008 with Sarah Palin, the real America is also the hockey mom, right? The real America takes on sort of this Midwestern-esque type uh, characterization um, that our country depends on rural people and the values that they have. At the same time that economically, socially, uh, and culturally, they seem to matter less and less. And that disjuncture between the political narrative about real America and all the other signals that rural Americans are hearing, I think, is what helps make the Republican Party and the candidates that are espousing and creating that myth so appealing. Somebody at least is talking about us. Somebody is caring about us. Somebody thinks we matter and that our livelihoods uh, add value to the greater conversation, even though with those those aspects of, of, of patriotism, religiosity, um, hardworkingness, those are found throughout America. Rural America does not have the monopoly on it. It is a myth. Anything to add, Dan? Well, I think as Nick was telling that story, uh, I think it's important to note that even commentators on the left, even Democratic commentators, would often fall into that. A number of places in the book we talk about uh, left-leaning uh, commentators, journalists, uh, referring to the heartland as the sort of the, the, the true take on where the election is headed. You know, the real Americans in the heartland will have, will have their say on this sort of a thing. So it's a very powerful myth. Um, it captures, you know, the, the right for sure, but also many on the left, you know, that that's where real America is. And of course, as Nick said, it's just not true. And, you know, one of the, one of the items that popped out as we were looking at our data was this question of religiosity, right? Isn't this where we find sort of the, the religious sort of right, uh, you know, that are, don't people in rural America spend it? a disproportionate amount of time at churches and praying and so forth. And that's not what we find, not by any by any stretch. You know, um, urban Americans are much more religious. They go to church much more often than do 
uh, rural Americans. Now, rural Americans might pray a little bit more. We found some differences there. But when it comes to attending religious services, that's really twice as high in urban areas. You wouldn't guess that, right? That's just one example. Well, certainly not. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating finding. You know, what, one of the other things that I think that your research shows is just the, the decline of, of rural Democrats, which I think is something that, that uh, you know, we've seen in the past few elections. But what, what happened to rural Democrats in the last 20 years? Well, that's we. Yeah, that's that's a tough question. Part of it has to do with um, not believing they they stand any chance, right? So it's not worth heading out into the trenches. A disproportionate, growing number of Republican candidates at all levels are running unopposed. It becomes very hard to be a Democrat in some of these communities. We we we. Uh, cite some 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 other works that talk about Democratic voters being afraid to put signs on their lawn, to put bumper stickers on their car, to speak up at town hall meetings. You know, it's sort of a I, I would say it's sort of a of self self. What do we say is a process where the less they run for office, the fewer win, and the fewer that win, the fewer that run for office. So it's a self-perpetuating cycle, I guess I'm saying. Yeah. One of the larger political sociological phenomenon giving rise to that is, you know, this this the widening gap between rural and urban America coincides with the nationalization of American politics. And for a long time, we people scholars have been writing about rural politics for a long time. They're, they haven't always called it rural politics. It's been a variant of local politics, right? Um, cutting my teeth in rural Virginia politics, it was just local Virginia politics. It was something different from the national trends that you would see. It was contextualized. And increasingly, both in the minds of the average voter uh, and, and how we make associations between candidates running for office and the partisan brands they represent, but importantly, organizationally, right? how the Democratic Party as an organization um, recruits candidates, fundraises off of a, a brand for candidates, supports candidates, you know, all the things that go into the organizational aspects of campaigning for office, they become national parties. And it's simply tough for a rural Democrat to distinguish themselves from that national image, that national brand, to receive support from a national activist base that expects a Democrat running in rural Maine or rural West Virginia to adopt the same principles as somebody running in the suburbs of D.C. And that ain't going to happen. For this book, you conducted a large rural voter survey. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the survey and your methodology. And of course, uh, we'll be, for the rest of this interview, we'll be referencing the survey, a lot of the different findings that you've had, uh, but but just a high level overview. Yeah. So I'll spare the, uh, the, the nitty gritty on some of the particular methodological sampling and weighting decisions. It's all there in the book and we make it, I think, pretty captivating. Um, but I, I, I mean, the basic problem is a simple one to understand, right? We're inundated with surveys and polling in modern political science and just open up the newspaper on any given day, you'll see a poll of what Americans think. You know, as most 
people know, right? Even in a country that's 330 million strong or 220 million voters, you only need a thousand and change respondents to make valid statistical inference. And that math is solid. What that means is that most, almost every poll or survey you get, and we have data on, if you were to look at rural voters, they would just number in the hundreds. And actually, rarely in these major polls do rural voters account for 20% of their sample. They are systematically undersampled. And the rural voter starts from that premise, right? That if we want to understand rural voters, we have to collect enough data in mass to fully account for the complexity of rural we have to get rural voters from every region across the United States. We have to get white rural voters. We have to get non-white rural voters, which are an important and growing part of the rural constituency. Um, simply put, it's a numbers game. We just needed thousands of them. And um, not sure why, you know, it, well, it is expensive, but, uh, you know, as important as they become, very few people have, have put that type of resource, uh, have put resources into that type of data collection effort, and uh, Dan and I did, and that's where the rural voter survey comes from. Yeah, and it, it wasn't a quick instrument either. We had a lot of interesting questions. You know, there are a number of questions that we've repeated from other studies, from very prominent studies, and I, I don't know, Dick, Nick, if you've ever done the math on this, but my guess is that probably 50 to 60% of the questions are unique to our survey, and they're fascinating. They're, they're, there's, they're, they're, we pull back uh, the cover on a lot of interesting perceptions, a lot of attitudes. We measure a lot of different stuff. It is, in my view, I don't want to be too hyperbolic here, but I think it's the most definitive study of rural voter perceptions and attitudes ever done, ever, ever created. Right. And, and having that flexibility to ask questions, I mean, allowed us to explore some dimensions of, of ruralness and rural attitudes that, you know, sometimes surprised us uh, in, in, in what they showed, what they didn't show. But right, how many surveys out there are going to ask about whether, um, how rural people are characterized? Now, what stereotypes do people say? I mean, we we at one point we simply just asked people like, "What do you like living about living? Why do you like living in a rural community?" And compared those answers to people living in urban and suburban communities. Um, yeah, it, 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 focusing on place, asking questions about place, and not just the fundamental things that Americans have in common, regardless of context. One of the the aspects that you look at that you asked questions that you asked about were about rural voters' perception of the economy, uh, their own views, and then you also compare that with with economic data uh, that that do show how they're how they're doing uh, based on objective measures. Uh, but but what has been in the state and the direction of the rural economy since two thousand eight recession? What do you see, and, and how did that motivate uh, sentiment among rural voters? Well, let me let me take maybe the first half of that. Um, I think it's a really important chapter. We do spend a, a good bit of time before getting to our data talking about the economic transformation of rural communities. And it, it's been staggering, right? So we talked about this a little earlier. 
you know, rural didn't mean, has never, well, hasn't meant for 100 years, hasn't meant agriculture per se. A lot of manufacturing happens in rural America. It's happened since the Industrial Revolution, rural America. And what we see is a sort of systematic decline of, of rural factories and mines and, and, and shops. Um, we see that after World War II, certainly with NAFTA, we, we get the hollowing out of manufacturings in rural areas. We talk about NAFTA ghost towns. And here's the catch. And of course, the WTO and China's admission, admit, admittance to the WTO in 2001. Here's the key issue, it seems to me, when it comes to rural economies. Americans or communities across America have seen a decline in manufacturing. 63,000 factories have closed since NAFTA. It's happening in rural America. It's happening in urban America and suburban America. But here's the difference. Very often, these small towns were centered on one industry, one factory. And when that closes, it's a death knell to that town. We talk about a lot of, we talk about Newton, Iowa, for example, where Maytag used to be. We talk about Millinock at Maine, Great Northern Paper. Just a quick bit of data, I'll turn it to Nick. When Great Northern Paper was doing its thing, it was a beautiful town. It had one of the lowest, uh, had the highest high school graduation rates in the state because you needed to graduate high school in order to get a job at the factory, at the paper mill. At that time, about 220, 230 kids were graduating year after year from the high school. When that paper mill closed, that dropped down to 38, that down to, down to just a couple dozen graduates. It, it, it decimated that town. So yeah, factories are closing across America. When it haps, happens in small towns, it can be devastating. So that's for one part of the story. But Nick's, Nick's found, I think, Nick is responsible for finding a, a really interesting piece on economic integration. Yeah, so the, the naysayer at this point, which we've heard a ton, says, well, those, those jobs are being hollowed out in the suburbs, in uh, urban areas, right? Like, Americans are struggling, not just rural Americans. That's undeniably true, right? Levels of economic inequality are just as high in rural America as they are in urban America. And I think actually the latest data suggests that urban Americans might be reeling from income inequality just a tad bit more. But what we found is that rural Americans are thinking about the economy in a, in a different way. Most of the time when we try to explain the economic reasons for voting, right, we, we look at people's pocketbooks. How'd you do this past year? Are you better off now than you were a year ago, than you were four years ago? And by and large, most Americans are, are, are pocket, you know, they vote with their pocketbooks. It matters how they're doing economically. Dan and I asked a set of questions about how communities were doing in your specific community. Importantly, actually used people's community names, town names in the survey. Children growing up in and around Vassalboro are going to have to leave to live productive lives. Mount Vernon is a better place now than it was five years ago. And when you put those together, rural voters are systematically more likely to draw on these social considerations, ideas about how the community is doing economically, even if they themselves are doing just fine 
economically or are no better or worse off than the average American. And so we wanted to explore why. Um, I, I think this is an area that is in need of much more research. I think some of it is cultural. I think some of it is embedded in the particular context that we study. But one thing we find is that, by and large, rural America is a much more socially and economically integrated place. And by that, what we mean is that rural America, urban America, suburban America, you have rich people, you have poor people, you have middle class people, you have people down on their luck, lost the job at the factory, are doing just fine. But in rural America, you're much more likely to see it. Dan and I simply just reflect on our drive in from work. Again, nobody's it's just a function of where I live. It's not a value judgment, but I've lived in I've lived in cities where on my way to the big university, I just pass a bunch of beautiful suburban homes or or nice nice uh houses on the way to campus. I I honest to God, I pass no fewer than four homes on my way to work that are in the process of being foreclosed at the very moment. You know, umpteen trailers. You know, I'm I'm doing just fine, don't get me wrong. But when we're talking about economic and social integration, rural areas are much more likely to be tightly knit. And I think that matters for why we see sociological understandings of the economy playing a bigger role in the interpretations of how rural areas are doing. Yeah, one of the key takeaways of the book Nick's getting at is the sense of shared fate, this idea that rural Americans, we don't find this really in urban among urban voters or suburban voters, but rural voters think they're in it together. Um, they sink or swim swim together. It's very powerful. We see that over and over, this shared fate. Yeah, that, that's uh that's very very fascinating and also very uh very striking, I think, to to paint that picture in part because I think that the, the image often as you said at the beginning of the rural voter is one of an individualistic bootstrapping type who might not have that same sense of of caring with the community, but but clearly that's that's not the case always. Uh, you know, another aspect of of the rural voters or going to maybe perceptions of how people might view the a rural voter is is that they care a lot about guns and they care a lot about religion. So how important are guns and religion really to rural voters? What what issues do you see really animate them most? Well one of the things that surprised us was that on most policy questions there wasn't a real difference between rural Republicans and non-rural Republicans. They were not more extremists. Ah, it's just a it's just a sort of a far-right conservative on steroids. That's not what we find. In fact, we've seen that over and over when, for example, when referenda or uh, where voters are allowed in rural areas to vote on abortion rights. It doesn't happen that way. We don't see that in Ohio, rural Ohio. We don't see that in Kansas. We find that over and over that rural voters on policy questions don't tend to be further to the right than other Republicans. But there is one, there is one policy dimension where they stand out, and that is guns and gun control. There's no doubt about that. They're, they're uh, strongly against gun control. And we ask it a number of different ways. Now, it is fair to say that upwards of 50% of, of rural voters would like to um, in, institute a 21-year-old uh, age for, for buying guns, right? So that's, that's at a, just a bare majority. 
but that's much lower than the rest of America, even Republicans in non-rural areas. And the key we find is that there seems to be a linkage between uh, culture, rural culture, and also to some extent a hunting culture, right? It, because it's a very part of an identity to be rural America, that be in rural America is to own guns. Uh, so that is, Caleb, you're right, that is the one policy area that, that stands out as truly unique, and that's gun control. I don't know if, Nick, you've got any piece to add to that. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, uh, someone like Bernie Sanders, who arguably is the most far left uh, senator in, uh, senator is, uh, I think he's a more, uh, a, a better NRA uh, voting record than, than almost any Democrat, than almost any other Democrat. And of course, Vermont's very, a very rural state. Uh, so, you know, it, it's very interesting to hear. And I think that does maybe match up with, with what my expectations were before, before seeing this. Uh, but you know, another dimension that you that you look at in the study is is the the racial attitudes of rural Americans. Uh, so, w what did you find, broadly speaking, of the racial attitudes, and how do they compare with urban voters? Right. So, we take a very similar approach to understanding racial attitudes as, as most mainstream political scientists, which is, you know, you can't in a survey environment just come out and ask people, "Hey, are are you racist?" or "Hey, what do what do you think about this group?" Um, what, what we do is we build on a very lengthy literature in rural resentment, which is understanding people's racialized sense uh, that, that this, this group is deviating from what's expected of them as Americans, that, that they're getting some unfair advantage or they're expecting something that uh, they shouldn't expect uh, if, if you weren't a racial minority. Um, and so these questions are deeply intertwined with Americans' understanding of, of hard work and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps, um, you know, whether or not past discrimination still matters, whether or not a colorblind society exists and that you can get ahead on your merit. Um, for sake of simplicity, we simplify the analysis at times by just looking at white America. Right, so you could imagine that the aggregate differences between rural and urban areas are different because the rural America is just whiter. So, just looking at white Americans, we do find that rural Americans are statistically more likely to hold these racially resentful attitudes. Undeniably true, right? If you ask the this more the most direct question, wasn't a part of the original racial resentment battery? Do white people have an advantage in society? Right, almost eighty percent of urban whites will say, "Yeah, they do." I agree or strongly disagree with that question. And a lower number of rural Americans will agree, but a majority of rural Americans will agree. I also I, I thought it was very interesting how you broke out looking at racial resentment, but then also looking at at, at perspectives towards immigrants because I think that sometimes people uh, you know there's a tendency to conflate these two, but. I do think that that separating these two is very important. So uh, how do rural voters feel about about immigrants, broadly speaking? So again, we see similar differences. Um, you know, this is again another area that's in need of much more research as immigration is not only, you know, changing the demographic landscape of the entire United States, but is having a particularly pronounced effect in rural areas um, and, and is going to continue to have that effect as, as 
if if manufacturing and and some lower uh, entry level income jobs begin to expand there. Um, but urbanites are, and again, this is just urban whites. Urban whites are much more likely to believe that Latinos are naturally, for some reason, predisposed to join gangs. Sixty um, percent of rural Americans think that immigration makes the U.S. a better country. Um, uh, only twenty percent of rural Americans, rural whites, excuse me, think that birthright citizenship is a bad idea. Um, the idea that there's no middle ground on these things, the idea that it is a homogenous group of irredeemable races, I think is incredibly problematic because racial resentment is profound in the U.S. It it alters voting outcomes, but it, it and it and it changes uh, our our resolve to do something about racial and and ethnic justice, but it does so everywhere. Uh, and increasingly, it's it's viewed as if this one contingent part of America is the is the holdout, when in in fact, you know, we need to confront these issues as a as a nation. Another thing you look at is the the difference between rural men uh, and women voters and, and how they view things. So so broadly speaking, what did you see as the difference between men and women, uh, rural men and women voters, and and how they might compare with uh, their urban counterparts? No, well, uh, two quick points. Um, First off, we were surprised to find that rural women were actually more likely to support Donald Trump than were rural men. The that gender gap doesn't exist in rural America. It's slightly, slightly more women than men, which sort of surprised us. We we looked at them fairly closely. We couldn't find too many real policy differences. The, the other thing that really surprised me, at least, is that when we asked a set of questions about the role of women in society, we did not find that rural men were misogynist, that were more sexist than uh, men elsewhere. In fact, believe it or not, on a number of measures, they came across as more progressive, uh, which was a real surprise to us. And we've I've actually shown that to that data to some of our students, and they've parsed it and looked at it, and they've scratched their heads. But yeah, that's that's the story, and we could we could talk about we could think about why that might be true. Um, but again, the, the stereotype of a far right, uh, a rural, particularly a white male voter, uh, it, it just doesn't work with a lot of our data. How important is the news and media in the lives of rural Americans? Uh, obviously, there's a perception that uh, rural voters are gorging themselves on Fox News. Uh, is this true? Um, no. They're, well, first off, conservative voters are gorging themselves on Fox News. Let's just say that, right? But the question is, are rural voters more likely to do that? And and the answer is no. That's not true. Of course, we I actually had in mind that we would find the rural voter particularly the the white male rural voter in their basement glued to conspiracy theory websites and Fox News and Tucker Carlson. So again, the truth of the matter is that conservative voters are hooked to right-wing media, but rural voters, not necessarily any more than that. The big story, Caleb, that we find, there are a couple of big stories. I'll do I'll do a part of it. Maybe, maybe Nick can do another part. I'll do that um that there's less and less local news in rural America. 
we see this this news deserts that we find, and others, many others, have talked about the evaporation of local coverage, and that leads to um, missing the story, leads to not getting the story right. And one of the more interesting findings that we find, maybe I'll let Nick, Nick talk about uh, about how how the media often gets it wrong. So there's a couple of of little facts I always keep in my head. And one of them is the idea, one of them is the finding that rural Americans are three times as likely uh, to say that the news uh, that about my, the news is irrelevant to my community. The news that I read is irrelevant to my community. Now, that's not to say you don't read stories about rural America. You probably have read plenty of stories, but who are those stories about? Um, drawing on on some of the work of uh, uh, by Stony Brook political scientist uh, Krupnikov and, and and Ryan, you know, Dan and I started looking into rural Americans who were more likely to be deeply engaged in politics, um, and the deep engagement matters for media coverage because those that are more likely to be deeply engaged to show up at the school board meetings and shout down their elected officials or post on Twitter or announce their presence to the world that I care about politics, right? This is how we are conceptualizing deep engagement. They're more likely to be covered by the media. Uh, Dan has gave them the very uh, clever uh, moniker as the the rural rabble rouser and it's spot on. I mean, we 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 identify this subset of the rural population that are posting online that say that they follow news very closely. This alone discriminates between uh, about ten percent of rural voters and the ninety percent of rural voters that aren't deeply engaged. And on every measure, the rural rabble rouser is what your stereotype of the rural voter is. They are the ones that are drawn to conspiracy theories. They are the ones with extraordinarily high levels of racial resentment. They are the ones um, that are, are are systematically more likely to hold ra- ideologically radical positions. They're also the ones less likely to care about their community and, and think about it and in those types of ways. So while they get the most coverage in media and for a variety of reasons we go into in the book, they're the ones that we should be covering the least if we really want to tell rural people stories and make that news relevant. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you drive down the interstate and you're leaving LA, right? And you're driving out, it doesn't take you long to get onto the countryside and you see that barn that's paste, painted with Trump sign. And you naturally think, well, there we are in rural America. And it's really... But the truth of the matter is, we find that's about ten percent. If you if you pull out that ten percent, rural America is not all that different, um, and, and their level of engagement is about on par with everyone else. The the rural rabble rousers are exceptional, and that's where the media is drawn to, drawn to for for clicks, and drawn to because they're just easy to get. They're just they're you know why not talk to the to the dude at the back of the town hall meeting that's screaming and yelling? That's your story, right? It's too bad because that's not that's not the the rest of rural America. I think you've done a lot to to help dispel uh, the, the sort some of the myths around what a, the rural voter might be, especially in the in the the mind of maybe city folk like me. Um, but what is the kind of the median 
maybe say archetype of a rural voter that that you think is it it really came out in the study the person where when a per you know ob- obviously it's impossible to narrow someone down to one single archetype but you're just kind of imagining picturing the modern day rural voter what what is that what is that type of person well it's not necessarily far right it's not necessarily dramatically more conservative but there are differences and i would think the principal difference is that they're the voter that interprets political cues through a place-based lens. They think of what's happening in the world as to how it's going to affect their community and not just their own stake in rural America, but their neighbors, right? There's this shared fate. So they're very different in in that way. They think of politics through a place-based lens and a shared fate which is very different. So the story is not that it's, well, there's just a far-right group of nuts, well, that, but there is. At the same time, they're not like everybody else. It's fair to say this is a distinct group. And I'm sure Nick's got, a, got something to add to that, but that's how I would. That's how I would distinguish them. Yeah, it's sort of, it's always a balancing act between, well, the divide is there, the divide exists, rural America is different than urban America, but so much of that difference is because of the pictures in our heads that confirm that difference, right? Rural Americans are exceptionally proud of where they live. They, they don't want to leave, right? This is not the abandoned wasteland hellhole that, you know, J.D. Vance has told you. you know, problems in Appalachia exist, you know, don't get me wrong. But like that, that cultural precarity exists because of the narratives that have been told about rural people that rural people interpret. So sort of a, a hard edge in response to that. You know, there's a there's a social anxiety about how their communities are doing, but it, but some of that is because they've been told that they rise and fall together. Um you know, I, they're not a innately different people. There's nothing instinctual about how rural people see the world. So it does come down to perceptions and how these different perceptions have formed. My last question, and granted, if if anyone really knew the answer to this, then then they could probably solve a lot of problems uh, in America. But but how can we bridge the divide between urban and rural voters? Yeah, we. I would. I wouldn't be here. I'd be so. I'd be on a Today Show book tour, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, Dan and I offer no panacea. In fact, we try to run as far away from that idea that's been thrown out there that all you got to do to bridge the urban divide is, you know, walk down that dirt road, knock on some more doors, just talk to one another and get to know, you know, that's that's important work. But more broadband. Yeah, more broadband. That's, that's our <laughs> friend. Uh, you know, those things might make a difference at the margins, but I think the first thing you have to recognize if you, if you care about overcoming the rural-urban divide is that it is deep, right? These are people's identities. Uh, They have been fashioned now over multiple generations. Uh, Bribing them with more federal dollars is not going to do it. Being authentic, speaking with rural peoples, um, understanding what it's like to live in the countryside, hell, having done it yourself, that will make a difference in the long run. This is a long-term healing process because it's been a divide that's been long in the making. 
Um, some of it has to involve opinion and thought leaders that that and who we take to task. And I I look forward to them grilling us in the in the in the in the Wonks blog on the New York Times. You know, some of it has to come from understanding geographic divisions that do exist and do not exist. So some of this is a, a cultural shift, a social shift, a knowledge shift. Uh, it's not a go read my book and this will all be fine. Go talk to you know Billy Bumpkins down the street, uh, and and you know you'll you'll feel like a better, uh, well-informed liberal in the city. Um, ultimately, you know Dan and I do approach it as a, a student's first and foremost of organizational politics, and and we are clear in the conclusion that really what is problematic is one party rule in these areas those conversations which are not hugging and kumbaya but like deep political conflict and conversations over the direction that only works in our country when two parties are running for office uh and so ultimately you know dan i'll, I'll leave it to the esteemed party scholar you know do put democrats uh to task for failing to show up yeah, I, 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 we end the book by saying it's also a myth that in order to compete in rural areas, you've got to discard your democratic small d, small, uh, I'm sorry, large d democratic ideas and principles, policy positions. Not true. We we have data su to support that that left progressive Democrats can actually win in rural areas. What's important, what's essential, is a deep connection to those places an authenticity, uh, an understanding, right? Andy Bashir did well in Kentucky because he is known. He is he's one of them, right? He, he has authenticity. He could, he's got a family legacy too. We have we get that. But 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 he did well in areas that were that were ravaged by the floods because he went out there and he rolled up his sleeves and he cared and and so the, we do think there's some hope for this two party competition. But as Nick said. It's not, there's no panacea. It's not going to be easy. Yeah. I mean, you, you certainly, I, I think, you know, obviously no, one, one book isn't going to solve things like you said, and it's, it's, it's hard to, to go out and really fix things. But I do think that, you know, if people uh, learned a little bit more, especially, you know, people like me, city folk, um, you know, learned a little bit more about what, what rural voters actually think, what they believe, uh, what, what matters to them, then, then it would, it would make a, uh, some bit bit of an impact, and I, I think you also you make such a great point too about just the problem the problem with run, one party rule when you know that it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, well, Nicholas and Dan, thank you so much for joining me today on the New Books Network. The book is "The Rural Voter: The Politics of Place and the Disuniting of America." Thanks so much. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you very much.